0: So actually a friend of mine told me that she was confused when she first, when she started listening to the first episode. She thought maybe she had started in the middle of it because we were just talking about something randomly. And then she finally realized after she like tried to rewind and see where the start point was that that's exactly what it was meant to be.
1: There's one podcast that did this. It's a tech podcast. and I love it. I think it's just a, a great way to to launch launch into this sort of stuff.
0: I don't think any of the podcasts that I listen to do a cold open. So I think in that regard, we're quite unique.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, in any case, that I, said,
0: I listen to political podcasts. Right. So you know,
1: I mean, as opposed to this, which is a, which is a comedy podcast.
0: <laughs> I listen to very well produced political podcasts.
1: Right. 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 Anyway, Shadi, uh good to have you back in my living room again um,
0: you know, well, it's good I, to be here I, I,
1: yeah. well so look i i i so far as this has been going we've been we've been sort of i think talking about the subject of the week as we figure out what this podcast is about um i I say we we do it again uh the the Epstein story seems to be the thing this week and and I mean, we can talk about Epstein himself, but what's really been uh gripping to me about it has been uh the whole sort of uh I don't know how to put it, uh the fact that that the way it's been discussed has been through conspiracies. I I I woke up on Saturday, I don't know how you uh heard of it, but I, I woke up on Saturday, I got a notification saying Epstein committed suicide, and I immediately went on the group chat that that you're part of and I said, wow, Epstein killed himself. Uh, something like Bill Clinton did it
0: um, yeah I' remember that
1: and and i i I said it as a joke, um, but I, I I knew that this is where this was going. I somehow knew immediately, and kind of like we were talking about last week, I, I then didn't go onto Twitter because I, I I had a sense that's what was going to happen. The only thing i wasn't quite ready for, uh, and i didn't anticipate honestly, is how much uh the president himself
0: would be would be involved in this he He jumped in immediately with the conspiracy theory. So, because, I didn't actually follow Trump's responses all that much, so what was his conspiracy theory?
1: No, he, he jumped in on the Bill Clinton thing. And obviously, in in retrospect, in my joke to you guys in the group <laughs> thing, I could claim right now that I knew that Trump would say this, but I just thought that <laughs> that all of Trump's followers would be jumping on this, kind of like on the Pizzagate thing, you know, with both feet, uh, that, that obviously, you know, this was, this
0: was a... a a large conspiracy but but uh, I didn't think of that at the well, time. Well, you know what's funny is that because I don't I don't necessarily check the news um on the weekend right away. I don't think that's a great way to start the day, so I often find that things surprise me later on once I do finally check the news, but my first the first mention I saw of it was actually in our group chat. Mm. And I thought it was some elaborate joke and you guys were just like fucking with me or something because you had like you had the conspiracies in like caps, like Bill Clinton did it in caps. I'm like, Oh, they're just messing with me. Like I, I wake up and I like, there's all these jokes going on. But then, then I actually later on went on the New York Times webpage. And I'm like, Oh, they were serious about this.
1: Why? Well, it, it's wild how quickly it happened. I mean, I think it, it's, and it, to me, it's, it's a, it's, it's a sign of the times to a certain extent. It's, it's a, uh, um, it's the way Trump has i think gotten in everyone's head and how uh you know just that 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 famous uh thing that's almost become a meme about people are saying right about Trump people are saying, and that's his his justification he'll then trot out whatever the whatever's on his mind um it felt that as this broke and then all the conspiracy theories about you know the fate of Epstein emerged, it was just sort of part and parcel of. The last two years, I mean, people talk a lot about the sort of conspiratorial nature of um, America, right? That that Hofstadter, you know, paranoid yeah. um, uh, style of American politics, but uh, this feels like something different. Like it's somehow been more mainstreamed in just how we interact and and um, in general, just just uh, deal with the world. I don't know. Are you feeling that? Is it is it is it is it just me?
0: Yeah. So. You know, working on the Middle East, conspiracy theories are part of your everyday life. They're they're pervasive and very well educated people promote them. And sometimes actually, in certain kinds of conspiracy theories, it's the more well educated you are, or the even sometimes the more time you've spent in the West, the more likely you are to believe in some like crazy thing. Um, if it aligns with your own kind of, uh, political side. And that's, that's oftentimes how it works in the Middle East, that everyone's susceptible to conspiracy theories if they align with what you want to believe. Um, and I think that one thing that we would, that I would often discuss with others is what explains this? How does this happen? And how, so in in the case of, um, in the case of Egypt, um, there's some very bizarre conspiracy theories that um stuff that ha- like uh, Israel introduces sharks in the beach mm. or like or like or they tend to they tend to involve Israel right, right. <laughs> or if not, they tend to involve America or if not, they tend to involve. The Muslim Brotherhood. And of course, this is if you're a member of the secular urban elite, you see the Muslim Brotherhood as having its hands in everything. But it's not you, it's not just the Brotherhood on its own. It's usually some combination of the Muslim Brotherhood, the U.S., and the Zionist entity. And it almost magnifies the, sc- the scope of the conspiracy theory because you have several different powerful actors that don't necessarily like each other. I mean, the idea that Israel would be in cahoots. With the Muslim Brotherhood is somewhat, um, is somewhat creative and odd. And that I think makes it a more devious conspiracy theory. So then you bring it up to them and you're like, well, come on, guys. You know that Israel doesn't like the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, they wouldn't work together. How would that work? That's not really plausible. And then they're like, exactly. <laughs> For them, that's, that's precisely what proves the genius of the conspiracy theory. Right. So they're, Right, right. When you try to reason, you're you're kind of buying into there. You're buying into the very premise, you know. Right,
1: right. Well, I, talk to me a little bit more about that. What what what's striking about what you just said is that the most educated and best informed people seem to almost traffic in the most elaborate forms of that. How, how how do you how do you explain that? I mean, at least from the sort of American perspective, right? We we tend to think that. Uh, conspiracy conspiracy theories are the provenance of low information voters of 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 people who aren't plugged in or or even more condescendingly aren't educated. Right? That it's it's it, we re, we need to uh, elevate our voters so they're not susceptible to such things.
0: So I should clarify, it's a certain kind of conspiracy theory that I have in mind here. But yeah, but so if you did an empirical study, maybe you could find different patterns and they would probably be pervasive throughout much of the population, but in different ways and different kinds of conspiracy theories would be more appealing to different segments of the population, right? But when it comes to like well-educated Egyptians, I think what's driving that is they want their country to be a particular way and the fact that they represent only a minority of the overall population in terms of liberal or secular sensibilities anything that goes counter to the greatness that they think Egypt deserves, then they have to find escape. scapegoat. Then they have to find some grand narrative of the case. Hmm. And it's oftentimes well-educated people who th- who are kind of flabbergasted by the dumbness of the masses or the fact that the masses are taking their country in a very different direction. So they have to counter that in a very aggressive way. There has to be some kind of explanation. They can't merely accept the fact that sometimes the rest of the population disagrees profoundly with them as elites. That's when I think elites become very susceptible to conspiracy theories when they feel like they're losing control over their own country. And they've always presumed that they would be the ones who would control the political or social or religious aspects of their country, and when they see the floodgates opening and um, the um, the untutored masses taking matters into their own hands that 's the most frightening moment for them
1: yeah, so okay that 's actually super enlightening uh, to me because i don 't think you and I have actually talked about this element of it. that helps explain to me uh, to a large extent, and correct me if i 'm wrong why why you are um, while certainly no trumpists have been have <laughs> been uh have been at least uh, uh provoked by the moment not provoked what's the word I'm looking for at least something about maybe an understanding of of these dynamics in the middle East has informed uh the way you've been approaching today
0: yeah so it's interesting because I don't think we've really talked about this part of it all that much, but um I think I'm naturally suspicious. Of elites who feel entitled, because I saw what those elites who felt entitled did in not just one Middle East country, but many, many Middle Eastern countries. Um, So I'm not someone who is very comfortable with like the elite gatekeeper um, philosophy of that, you know, it's better for elites to control flows of information and all of that. I'm not necessarily one who wants to trust elites or to give them disproportionate power. So that does inform how I view various things here in the U.S. and especially in the Trump era that we're in right now. Um, and if you look at where conspiracy theories are coming from, I think that I was reading an article today that maybe you had sent, Amir, where there was talk about this, the paranoid center, mm. that it's not just the far right and the far left, or maybe even not primarily the far left. And we could even have a debate about, are there more conspiracy theories emanating from the center or the center left than the socialist left, for example? There could be a case to be made in that regard. And I am I also think of um David Adler's piece in the New York Times last year, where through various empirical data, he made the argument that it's actually centrists who are most hostile to democracy, to procedural democracy, um, and to respecting democratic outcomes. And I think that maybe that's a little bit different, but it gets at as something similar, I think, that the center feels, the center looks around itself and they see the right and they see the far left, they see socialists and they see, um, but mostly they see Trumpists in the far right. And they see themselves losing elections, not just in the US, but throughout Western democracies. And they can't, they can't get their heads around that. That seems to them to be an implausible result. How is it possible that voters would actually opt for extremists or these crazy deplorables? So once they see that as. As a weird outcome, they have to explain how this weird, bad outcome comes to be. And one way of explaining that is to say that voters have been misled, that voters have been duped, that there is a conspiracy afoot. And of course, one conspiracy is the conspiracy uh, of the Russian regime or Russians or um, Russians in, 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 um, in conspiracy with other nefarious actors. So that I think explains quite a bit about the Russia hysteria in my view.
1: Right. Look, I I, I think it was, it was this week, Ross Douthat's column uh, makes a good point though, however, right? That, that the other element of this, there's a lot that I want to unpack of what you mm. said, but specifically on, on the Russia thing, and I think we, we do need to make this clear. It's that um, just because there's a, conspiracy-minded element uh, to something like that doesn't mean that, you know, some underlying truth there also is not at play. I mean, the Russians clearly were trying to do things. The conspiracy element is sort of what you're getting at is, is, and where it becomes troubling is when they take this element of truth that the Russian state is trying to undermine the workings of our democracy and is trying to intervene in all these ways, but that that is the total explanation, that that is um, that they have managed to disinform and manipulate voters into acting against uh their own interests and have had an overwhelming um effect on our on our elections, right? I mean, that's the part that's that's tricky because
0: Yeah, look, there is truth. So I think that both of us have no problem acknowledging that the Russia that Putin the Russians, the Russians the Russians even which is a problematic phrase i suppose but that the Russians have been trying to subvert our democratic process there's no doubt that the the russian regime wants to see us at each other's throats they want to undermine american stability there's no doubt about that but what really troubles me is People who take that fairly anodyne observation, I mean, who really doubts that the Russians want that and are trying to do things with that goal in mind? But then they take it several steps further to say that the Russians caused Trump to win. And if it wasn't for various Russian conspiracies, Trump wouldn't have won. And therefore, Trump's victory itself is illegitimate. Right. Right. And that's also, that's a dangerous argument and one that plays into Russian hands. Absolutely. It's precisely what Russians would like many Americans to think because it casts doubt on the entire electoral integrity of our system. Precisely. Yeah. You know, I, but it also says essentially that Americans are too dumb that, wait, huh, that there's no way Americans could have voted for Trump willingly on their own. So it's, it's essentially saying, that um there's no way Americans could have done something like this which i think is very patronizing to say to your fellow Americans because we know that many millions of them did vote for Trump but to say there's that there's something like the, there's a kind of false consciousness and this also fits into the social media critique that even if Americans did vote for Trump they voted for Trump because they were pushed to go against their natural instincts by an outside power.
1: Right. Well, so I think we're getting at a really key question here. Uh, do you agree that there's something that even the founders worried about, the idea of a demagogue? Does, a demo, does demagoguery exist? i mean let me ask you that to begin with, because I think the 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 issue is between um the tension between you know the category of a demagogue and the ability of a demagogue to hold sway versus something else which is faith in the inherent wisdom of the individual uh to be able to make you know a set of sovereign decisions which also underlies a certain conception conception we have about the inherent goodness stability um legitimacy of democracy right so yeah. talk to me about demagogues yeah, yeah sure
0: so did the did the founders um prefer that we not have demagogues and were they concerned about that that eventuality yes but then we're at a point now where we do have demagogues, and then we have to ask a different set of questions. We can't pretend they don't exist. They are there. Trump is one of them. Then the question becomes, is a demagogue the symptom, a symptom, or the symptom, or is it a cause? And I'm inclined to say that it's a symptom. So, and I think that our, our mutual friend, Pascal Emmanuel Gobry made this point in a Twitter thread the other day, that there is a danger in attacking the symptom. Hmm. And I think that's oftentimes what we're doing. We see a demagogue and we're saying that is the problem. No, that is the result of a deeper set of largely structural problems that are very hard to address. And it's a lot easier to say, well, Trump is causing people to act this way and he's the independent variable. But actually, in many ways, he's the dependent variable. He's the result of a confluence of factors. And it's so easy to say that Trump is the problem because it basically absolves not just Americans, but particularly elites of their responsibility for the messy, shitty, problematic situation that we're in, not just in the U.S., but in many, if not most democracies across the globe. So it's so convenient. And that's why I think elites and gatekeepers, if you will, are so focused on attacking Trump, the person, because that is an easier answer to a more, much more difficult question.
1: I agree with you actually a lot.
0: However, <laughs> however, okay, and however.
1: No, 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 let me, let me put this in, yeah. in there because I, I'm, 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 I'm working through this, uh, I'm reading Peter Pomerantsev's new book. just came out last week. Um, It's about, uh, very broadly, about um, technology and this proliferation of the disinformation thing. Peter's been uh, working on this uh, for years now. Um, And Peter comes from a, uh, I think there there are certain assumptions with how Peter goes about it, but it's a very persuasive book and talks about the role of technology and the ability uh, to... Do this kind of manipulation. Um, I sent you the other article. I don't know if you had a chance to look at it in the New York Times about YouTube in Brazil that yeah, came I out did. A, a few days ago. Um, and I guess what the only pushback I'd give to you in the characterization you had about um, how easy it is for elites to just point to Trump and externalize all of these things and say that it's a symptom. I think a more nuanced way to say is it's clearly, yes, it's a symptom on the one hand, but it's also a cause and maybe technology is amplifying these things. That is to say that the founders were worried about a demagogue. Arguably, they set up uh, everything in such a way that they were actually disappointed with how democratic things turned out when... um, Thomas Jefferson and Adams were on their deathbed and corresponding before they died they had a sort of shared understanding that uh the country was a lot more democratic than they thought and even Jefferson who who has tendencies of 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 being uh more democratic than the more aristocratic yeah. Adams uh neither of them were exactly as big of a Democrat or would would have been thrilled to see something like Jacksonian democracy arise shortly after. The thing is um, that, nevertheless, even taken, taking Jacksonian democracy and the, the evolutions since the, the early founding period, there still was this concept of gatekeepers and an elite that was able to, I think, keep demagogues, in check. That is to say, on the one hand, I agree with you, the label of demagogue is, is far too easy to just point to and then say, well, you know, this is the cause when really it's just a symptom. But what if it's both to a certain extent? That, you know, something that ends up being symptomatic of distress, unhappiness, uh, dissatisfaction, suspicion about the hollowness of elites... At the same time, if the gatekeepers go away, and whether that's technologically driven or because the gatekeepers themselves have shown themselves to be hollow and corrupt, then you get this sort of feedback mechanism now that we don't have a check on, that, again, social media algorithms of amplifying these signals, even malevolent actors who are using these things to to play with our democracies Um, that something has changed and that that variable is this quickening and this falling off of of these things. And we now find ourselves in a situation where uh, it's both, basically. Um, And it becomes devilishly hard. On the one hand, you don't want to say that Trump is illegitimate because that's playing that that one-sided game. On the other hand, you don't want to say that well, this is just the messiness of democracy, and it'll work out just fine maybe Maybe that we've we've reached some sort of inflection point where the collapse of the gatekeeper on the one hand, be it because of technology or because of um, the hollowing out of the ruling class and and elites uh, is leading to a kind of Nasty feedback loop where the the you know demagoguery is now unchained and it's having an effect that it won't be able to be brought back, does that make sense what yeah, it I'm does it at? does
0: those are really good points and um there there's a lot there so a couple thoughts um is social media amplifying something? yes, but it's amplifying something that's already there, so is it a factor? Is it a contributing factor? Yes. But to kind of say that social media is the cause, or in the case of Brazil in this New York Times article, that YouTube caused the far right to come to power, that's a language I'm very uncomfortable with because why were Brazilians receptive to crazy, crazy or, or problematic or racist or whatever it might be, right-wing commentary They were receptive to it because it spoke to something that they were looking for. There was already a gap there. And then this discourse filled that gap. Then the question should be, if we want to go to the kind of the original causes, what led Brazilians to be so susceptible to outlandish conspiracy theories? Something made them susceptible to that, right? So that's one thing I would say. When it comes to, will this all work out in the end? I think it's worth remembering, or at least this is my interpretation based on what I've read of the late um, 18th, early 19th century. Um, And if you look at the conflict between Thomas Jefferson and Adams, and I think the book Friends Divided captures this quite well, if you look at the kind of debates they were having, I mean we were we were closer to civil war then than we are today under Trump. That that was a very scary time at least from the historical accounts that we can look at today. When you read the kind I mean these are very foundational divides including between founding fathers themselves. And of course we did eventually have a civil war. So clearly we were not a stable democracy in the early founding period. So I look at what we have today, and I think we touched on this maybe a little bit in the last episode, I find myself more relieved than perhaps I have any right to be. I see the polarization, I see the divisiveness, but is it possible that we had just as many conspiracy theories and theorizing 40 years ago But the only difference maybe then was people didn't have a way to tell the rest of the country that they believed those conspiracy theories because they didn't have social media. So they couldn't log on on a Saturday morning and be like, hey, I think Bill Clinton did this. So we don't know empirically whether more people actually believe in in worse kinds of conspiracy theories. What we do know is it seems like more people are expressing conspiracy theories Every single minute, every single hour of the day, but those are two different kinds of problems.
1: yeah, absolutely. but here's let me let me throw that at you in a different way. Um, we had more solid gatekeepers and a higher level, let's say, trust in elites forty, fifty years ago. I think that's true. Um, and arguably. Let me put this out as a thesis: Our democracy was healthier as a result. Go back to talk to me about Egypt and the fact that uh, it's a society that is not a democracy. It is a society that um, is traumatized and uh, has it's uh, a society that 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 has rolled back from a quick flirtation with democracy at this yeah. point and there you have an endemic culture of conspiracy theories which you so nicely described earlier of in fact you know as you as you put it yourself you know of the, the the kind of person that is uh trafficking in this it struck me when you were describing it to a certain extent how how many parallels there are to what i think is a kind of new thing. Again, I'm not saying that there haven't been conspiracies in America, but it is striking the extent to which with the advent of Trump, uh, the last two and a half years, how we have been overwhelmed by some of these, these conspiracy theories. And even, you know, I mean, we started talking about Epstein. Uh, One of the stories today was that his neck was broken in, in, in a way that suggests that he might've been killed. Hey, Maybe he was killed. Honestly, we don't know the details of this yet. But I've I've been proceeding up through all of this by on the on the premise that that uh, our jails are terrible. Uh, we have incompetent jailers. So the fact that the guy who was supposed to be watching him wasn't there, or was you know for whatever reason didn't see when it happened. Even that the video wasn't there. I I I I. I was perfectly happy to write all that off to the fact that the fact that the uh the jails themselves are just really horrific and our system yeah. is really broken there. To me that's that's more plausible than than some conspiracy of this. And yet and yet we have columnists in all of our major papers speculating about the conspiracy thing. I I So again, does that signal something about the health of our democracy that especially going back Reflect a little bit on, on, on the Middle East parallel to this. It, are, are we in a new moment? And again, uh I'm not saying that anything you said about um, original causes and roots of discontent that lead to demagogues and all of that is wrong. I think that's all correct. Yeah. But again, are we are are the fact is the fact that we are now caught up in this this new thing and the fact that it seems just from this conversation that it has some parallels to uh Middle Eastern political discourse in some ways. Um, do you see any parallels there? Does so that- yeah, well,
0: I don't know if this actually fits into your parallel, but one way of describing the failure of democracy, the failure of the democratic experiment in Egypt, is elite gatekeepers, so intellectual elites who were powerful, uh, powerful in the media, um, and um, Members of senior members of the military, the judiciary, the so-called deep state and the Egyptian bureaucracy. These were elite gatekeepers almost, you know, in some sense by definition. And at some point, they decided that democracy could not proceed. That's not to say that this democracy or this experiment wasn't flawed, it was very much flawed. But however you want to describe that democratic experience, they said enough. So when I look at it that way, I see elites as, in some sense, inherently anti-democratic actors because they are suspicious of popular rule. They are suspicious of the people saying and doing too much on their own. They are suspicious at times of the vote, of people voting too much for too many things, right? So um, so that's one way of interpreting the Egyptian case. I don't know how well that fits into what we're talking about now. There are some parallels, I suppose um and one parallel is that um, you don't always want the elites to be controlling the gates, and sometimes um and I think that you actually, if I can quote you, Demir. <laughs> I think you would, put, you would put it this way to a mutual friend of ours. You had said something like, either the people are sovereign or the people are not sovereign. And I like that way of putting it. At some point, you have to choose. And if you do believe that the people are sovereign, then you have to accept that the people, in quotation marks, are going to say, enough is enough. We're done with trusting the elites. So was it better 50 years ago that there was relatively high level, high levels of trust in elites? I don't know. Was it? We can debate that. I wouldn't want to assume that without questioning the premise because maybe we have to go back a little bit further. Well, we can talk about McCarthyism. We can talk about before that or even during that period, um, still pretty profound. Um, racial uh, racial discrimination enshrined in law. I mean, at this time in the let's say the fifties, let's take the fifties. You had trust in elites, but you also had terrible racist policies that were institutionalized and systematized in a way that we would never dream of accepting today. And a lot, I think, part of why that was able to sustain itself was because of elites. Yeah. Right. And it was yep. only when when you had um hundreds of thousands if not millions of Americans saying we are no longer comfortable with elite consensus on x y and z issues that's when you had real challenges to these structural uh, these structural inequalities and structural discrimination so on and so forth right yeah
1: how would I mean, that yes yes um absolutely i think um Change in societies, I hesitate to say
0: progress because i don't know <laughs> for me for me i i i well, the language of progress, I think we both agree is inherently problematic, this idea of a progressive kind of caste to historical
1: but, but we shouldn't talk, we shouldn't neglect. I mean, I, I, I catch myself in saying that because we shouldn't neglect the, at least the idea of the possibility of change and adaptation. And that is what democracies are good about, right? And, and, um, a healthy democracy is one that is able to take into account, um, the signal, that signal from, uh, the people, you know, the wisdom of crowds, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, it's it's. I guess the question I have for you is that you know the, the elites are 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 uh, at least in in the Egyptian case uh, again with resonances for some of our elites, but it's it's uh, suspicious of people voting too much and on too many things. But at the same time, we we don't live in direct democracies, and and we live in representative democracies, or at least the healthy ones are. Um are you worried at all about about too much democracy or like too much direct democracy too much unmediated democracy or are you are you generally an optimist about that in the sense that um you think that that there's no problem in in integrating that into a what what is a healthy democracy does that trouble you at all
0: Okay, I want to be careful here because I don't want to sound completely complacent about the moment that we're in. Obviously, I this is a scary time. We feel that. I feel it. You feel it. Something feels wrong. And we've talked about that in the previous episodes, right? But the feeling that something is uniquely wrong today, is that democracy's own way of calling us to attention, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm, hmm. Okay, let me, I'm, and maybe this is precisely the point of the podcast. (laughs) Because I am a bit torn on this because I find myself sometimes scared, but also sometimes relieved. And I go back and forth between thinking that this is natural, like this is, this is part of a self-corrective mechanism. And sometimes where I think, well, this is something that is brand new and unique and scary that we'll never be able to recover from. And we're so in the moment that it's hard to disentangle. Like, which one is it really, right? I guess I'd say... The well, fact, go on. Yeah, yeah. I guess the fact that you can just wake up and see all these different, all, all this messiness where different ideas are competing with each other and where different subgroups that never had a voice are able to kind of put, put out their own ideas. And here I'm not talking necessarily about the right, but the fact that the socialist left or whatever you want to call social democratic left feels empowered to push ideas that would otherwise be considered radical, that did not get a hearing 20 or 30, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. Certainly not in the otherwise peaceful, prosperous years of the 1990s where the center seemed to be ascendant. And I like that the center does not dominate in that way anymore. And you do have ideas. And I, you know, I've written about this before about the 70% marginal tax rate or the, or a wealth tax or the fact that Bernie Sanders previously radical ideas are now entering the mainstream. That would not have been possible without the collapse of the gatekeepers that all these people are lamenting. So what people are lamenting is also allowing new economic voices that are challenging the economic status quo. To actually get a hearing, that seems to me to be a self-corrective mechanism. Because what massive inequality? I think most people would agree, even if they disagree on what the actual solution is, it's getting bad, and that's driving some of the problems that we're seeing in our in our in Western democracies. And that and and that that economic inequality um, interacts with social cultural and identity-based movements and you can't separate them from each other. So now that we actually have politicians that are saying we have to get serious about addressing this stuff and none of this incrementalist, half-hearted nudging, nudging is not enough. And there was a book called Nudge that actually did promote the idea that we could address foundation, like structural problems through nudging. And clearly that does not work. And people are not content with that, with that answer to the question. So in that sense, if you look at the collapse of gatekeeping from that perspective that I've just laid out, then it's working, right? We're questioning we're questioning the dominance of private corporations that have a disproportionate effect on our economy, but also on our cultural and political life, right? Something seems wrong. And the fact that we feel that something is wrong is pushing more and more people to action and not just, and now I was just talking here about the left left, but the fact that folks like Tucker Carlson and others that seem to be on the opposite side of the spectrum. Are citing some of the same concerns. The fact that Tucker Carlson mentions Elizabeth Warren's two-income trap uh, book as one of one of his influential books or a book that's really shaped his way of thinking that doesn't reflect badly on Elizabeth Warren. If anything, that's a promising sign that there is a broader that it's not just the far right and the left or whatever that there there is a common. That there's a common economic critique here that folks on different sides of the spectrum are realizing because they they feel that something is wrong, maybe in different ways, but there is an overlap, right? Yeah, I know there's a lot there. There's, I, I a, there's a
1: whole lot there. No, no. And I, look again, I, I I think that's right. Um, but what you're getting at there is that that um, what I think is genuinely exciting. The way I think about what you just said is that at the end of the Cold War, um, the consensus, call it the hegemonic consensus at <laughs> the end of the Cold War, was this idea that we figured it out. You know, not to caricature too badly the uh, the views of, of, of my former professor and founder of the magazine I work at, Frank Fukuyama, the end of yeah. history idea, right? Um, that Basically, and what flows out of the caricatured version of the end of history, right, is is uh, the technocratic ideal, which is what Cass Sunstein's Nudge book ends up being—the apotheosis of. Yes. Right? It's not only not only are the big issues solved; we can just all all that's left is we solve with these like behavioral sort of tweaks. You know, people aren't saving enough. We 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 make it the default that was i think the the big insight of that of that book is like you 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 reset the defaults on preferences and then people you know because they're lazy <laughs> they will they will choose the virtuous thing if 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 technocratic elites pick virtue for them and I think what's happened and what you're describing and what you're excited about is that the hold of that vision which really in the 1990s and, you know, I would argue until 2008, had a certain kind of uh, dominant hold on, on, and that's where the center came from and we were all marinating in it and that's how you were respected as a serious person is if you took all that, that's been shattered. Um, and so now there's space for different ideas. And we have, if not a full ideological spectrum, we have a broader space where, Ideas can be taken seriously. What I mean by full ideological spectrum, we're not talking about uh, completely different philosophical s- systems where you have Marxism-Leninism on the one side and a kind of uh, market-based liberal society on the other, which identified the Cold War. But, but it's at least the, the sureness of the end-of-history moment has been shattered, uh, and the spaces allowed for more ideas. But, and we can talk more
0: about it. And I'll just say, Demir, like, yeah, the this consensus that we're talking about, it was a narrow consensus. And I think that it's easy to forget how narrow it actually became. The kinds of things that, and so take foreign policy, for example, when, you know, this term, the bipartisan consensus, and you've been very critical of that bipartisan foreign policy consensus which i think you might argue was overly interventionist and now now there are people questioning the entire architecture of american foreign policy including perhaps the president himself yep. in ways that i think are obviously quite problematic but it's worth um it's worth remembering that that architecture gave us something like the consensus around the Iraq war. And it's easy to forget how many prominent Democrats signed on to that without questioning it because there was this illusion of, of, um, that we knew that elites knew and that we had to listen to what the elites on from both parties were telling us about whatever it happened to be weapons of mass destruction, so on and so forth. Um, I'm less critical. Than you about aspects of that bipartisan foreign policy consensus, and I hope that one in a future episode we'll talk about some of those differences. I'm still pretty much an interventionist, not on the Iraq War, and and um, uh, but um, on things like Syria, Libya, and so on. Um, and that's you know that's a different set of issues. But how is it that elites got us into the financial crisis? of the late 2000s how is it that these bipartisan elites got us into the Iraq war we really i mean i don't want to sw- I, we fucked shit up yeah we really got this stuff wrong and yeah. i think that when elites kind of say well you know we have to we have the right answers and we we have the nudging ideas There's no accounting in the anger and the frustration that so many Americans have towards this unaccountable, unaccountable elites. Well, they were accountable in some sense in that they were elected and there should have been some, there should have, there should have been a more obvious corrective mechanism. And that's also what's frustrating is that in theory, these were people that should have been accountable, but oftentimes weren't in practice So then where is the accounting for these mistakes? I think that's what a lot of people are asking. There's an anger there that really hasn't been addressed. The bailouts of the banks, even if that was right from a technocratic standpoint, and I'm willing to acknowledge that it might have been the most technically sound policy option, but that doesn't get us any closer to addressing the fact that people were pissed off. Yeah. Yes.
1: And we should do foreign policy soon. Um, but how is
0: it possible that all these smart, well-educated elites that all went to the top schools, that all were being elites together and hanging out and all this—they got all this—they got, this, got all this stuff wrong.
1: That—that—that doesn't—that doesn't surprise, doesn't surprise but, or but I th- me. Quite but frankly. I think—but
0: I think it surprises and troubles elites themselves who aren't willing to acknowledge the, the, the sheer scale of the failure. This isn't just a couple mistakes. This is this is much deeper than that. The Iraq War is the most strategic blunder in foreign policy of of the modern era.
1: You're not going to get arguments from me on that, Shadi. None of that. Um, I guess, though, what I'm I'm I want to just pull us back to the 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 sort of systemic question. And I, I there's so much to discuss on on all the things, on the economy, on foreign policy, on and on the space that's been opened up for this. I I don't question any of that, and I don't even, I I think it's healthy. But let me ask you again, though. It's about, we started talking about conspiracies, and we started talking about what are the, we, we, we hit upon the idea of what are the dependent and the independent variables. What's changed? Has anything changed? One thing that I think you and I and our broader cohort and I think it was very apparent in the uh, National Conservatism Conference we talked about two episodes ago, um, is a sense that none of us saw Trump coming, none of us saw Orban coming. Well, to be well, well but hold on a yeah. second. But but none of us really, you know. Once it happened, our, our good friend uh, uh, once said this basically is that what what us pundits are really good about is back explaining anything <laughs> that happens. So Trump happens and all of a sudden everyone has 50, 50 good rationale for, for why it happened. And I think that, that one of the dangers is uh, that it becomes overdetermined, that, that um, now we're reading in a kind of profound dissatisfaction and, and a profound kind of electoral mood that is there. I mean, I'm not denying that it's there, but it's also a danger of I think over-determining that and, and over-determining what it means uh, at any one thing, at any one point. So again, I ask you, it's it's um it's to consider um on a systemic level, are there dangers um from uh the kind of hollowing out of the elites that is then amplified, the effects of which are amplified by this technological revolution, um, into which step demagogues who are pushing a kind of, uh, I don't want to say nihilism, it's not that, but it's a kind of uh, agenda that is foreign, or at least outside of the consensus of a kind of, um, of some precepts that are necessary for the West to exist, or at least are part of the tradition. Call them a certain set of beliefs, if you will, you know, to get back on a set of, of beliefs. We, these aren't necessarily truths, so we like to talk about them that way, but a set of founding beliefs. So we have a set of demagogues that are now harnessing a, uh, a hollow center, the ability to... Uh, Mobilized through technology, um, and we're headed into this 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 space now. And again, I, I put forward to you this thesis that that the fact that that uh, the striking prevalence of conspiracy theories to me it signals some unhealth. And again, I, I say this by bracketing, you know in a positive way, everything you said about this kind of um, excitement and and uh, sense of possibility in all of this. And I, I want to also say on top that I'm not actually a pessimist, that I think that we're driving off a cliff. I do think that, that overall uh, maybe this is part of a correction, but I just want to push back a little bit on the, on, on, and you said it yourself, it's not all sanguine. I mean, there are dangers in all of this, right? I mean, do you agree in that? That there's there's a can you dwell a little bit on the on the potential dangers of the situation, apart from the fact that that the the floor has been open to a, a wider set of ideas?
0: Yeah. Okay. So the thing that I'm most worried about is Trump winning in twenty twenty, and then more and more Democrats as a result losing faith in the very idea of the democratic process, because it's one thing for it to happen once, and they've had, and many Democrats have found solace in the idea that Russia or Comey's letter or God knows what else caused the outcome. But if it happens a second time, then then I think it will... I can imagine a lot of my fellow Democrats seeing that and thinking, wait, can we not actually win in a democratic contest? And if we can't, then is there something fundamentally flawed about the democratic, about not the current democratic process, but the idea of having a democratic process and adjudicating our differences through that and respecting the outcomes that result and so on? And then if if people lose faith and... They become more despondent, then they look for options outside of the political process. And they don't have to necessarily be violent, but they, they, but they will be outside of the system in a way that I think could be dangerous. You don't want, you want people pissing inside the tent as much as possible. Right. Right. So that's one thing I'm worried about. That said, if Democrats win and it's close, um, What are Trump supporters going to say or do? They're going to immediately, and this is not just Trump supporters, but also the Republican party impeachment. People, we're going to be in this perpetual state of whoever loses the election will try to impeach whoever won. That's, and that's why I thought the rhetoric around Trump and trying to impeach him by any means necessary, even well before the Mueller report came out. Let's not even get into the Mueller report. But right when Trump won, people were like, this is illegitimate, and people were already kind of thinking ahead to how they could justify impeachment, um, and so on and so forth. And that's why I was so, I was like, this precedent is is a dangerous one. Once we start getting into this, this, this manner of political combat that is existential and that sees the other side as inherently legitimate, then it's going to keep on going on for the rest of our lives, perhaps. And that's why I'm such an outspoken opponent of, I don't think we should impeach Trump. I don't think we should even try to impeach Trump. I don't think we should, um, we can talk about it because we should be able to talk about everything in in a democratic context but I don't think it should be treated as a serious like that's not what we should be spending our time on right um so that's what I worry about going forward is that we're going to have this endless back and forth of accusations of illegitimacy what now, about yeah
1: yeah what about what about what about um the drive to make changes in the very essence of our representation uh and and again moving towards a more a more direct democracy? How do you feel about the electoral college stuff? How do you feel? And I, again, it's to me that's interesting because, again, wisdom of crowds. <laughs> but wisdom of crowds, populism, it's what we're talking about, I think, in different ways. In we really picked
0: the right podcast name.
1: <laughs> I, but the, the question is... Um, are you are you concerned about any of those vectors? Yes, you're right. I think the, the impeachment thing, I wrote about it once. Uh that I it seems to me that again, with the end of the Cold War, uh, the and the rise of the culture war, and and you know, I think Pat Buchanan's speech in what's that, 91, 92, it, it 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 foreshadows a lot of the stuff that's happened since then. How uh a lot of these sort of things that I think were channeled during the Cold War externally, or at least it it helped diffuse and have create a, a maybe a, a false sense of unity. How after the end of the Cold War, uh, a lot of these issues got got raised up, and I, I think it has been a a a long process of of move counter move escalation more dysfunction. This is not just something that that started with Trump, certainly not, um, and it's going to get worse. I agree with you. But talk to me a little bit about some of these other questions about about how we
0: do democracy. Okay, so in terms of how we do democracy, so like in the academic literature on democratization, one phrase that comes up a lot is the rules of the game. And one thing that you need in a democratic setting for it to be at least somewhat successful is agreement over the rules of the game. For better or worse, the rules of the game that were that were in agreement in 2016 were more or less the Electoral College. You can't, after the outcome, you can't go and retroactively say, well, the rules were bad or the rules were unfair. I mean, maybe they were unfair and maybe the Electoral College is inherently unfair, in quotation marks, unfair. Like, what does that mean exactly? What does Um, it mean exactly? Yes, (laughs) no, (laughs) but it's it's a critical question, right? But the broader point is simply that is the electoral college are that those were the rules of the game. I agree with you. I mean, so but but considering 2016 is done,
1: and I think you know, even even as Nancy Pelosi contemplates and starts moving the machinery towards impeachment, it's happening to a certain extent. Be it from her own wisdom of her own judgment, or whether it's pressure that's doing it. I do think that as we head into the next elections, the debate is moving away from the legitimacy question, right? Yeah.
0: So I think that, okay, we should talk about whether we should change electoral college and I'd be all for it if if enough Americans decide through the democratic process that they want to change it. That's how you change the rules of the game. If you have a new consensus where enough people, not 100% of people, but a significant majority of people decide that the electoral college is no longer appropriate for for the situation that our country is in and we need a new system, a direct popular vote, for example, then people can advocate for that. But if they can't actually get that through the legislative process and change the rules of the game, then they have to accept that result too. I mean... That's the only way you can actually affect change in a country like ours. You can't say, well, oh, well, Republicans are blocking any change in the electoral college and therefore democracy sucks. That's not the way it works. Of course. Um, so if, if, if the rules of the game stay as such, then Democrats have to learn how to fight by within those rules. And by those rules in a more effective way. And if we, if we aren't able to do that, that only reflects badly on us. It means we kind of suck. If we cannot beat Donald Trump, even within the constraining, um, context of the electoral college, that means we have failed in some kind of very basic way. Here is a pretty, like, I mean, <sighs> At some level, you have to beat someone like Trump, and if you can't do that, then you suck. yeah, no, I agree i agree but i'm but I'm all for having conversations about changing the rules of the game, but then but there's a limit to that because they're probably not going to be changed. It's going to be very hard to do that
1: interesting though that you're not um sort of and this is something I need to think through myself i'm I'm thinking through it um But the question, the extent to which uh, on, call it philosophical grounds, I'm worried about, I, 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 I echo to a certain extent the elites you were scorning earlier who are concerned about too much democracy, too much voting, whether a healthy democracy needs to be balanced away from too much direct stuff. So it's interesting that, that at least from hearing you talk right now, you're not concerned about that. I guess my concerns are well because here, but just very well mm-hmm.
0: that the electoral college is itself a product of a democratic process. So I'm, as you probably, as you know, Demir, like I'm kind of, um, I'm a, a so-called democratic minimalist. I sort of view that whatever, whatever a given democratic process produces. I consider to be inherently legitimate, even if I don't like it. So regardless of what I personally feel about the merits of the electoral college versus a direct popular vote, I'm willing to defer to whatever the democratic process produces. Just so, just so you know, yeah. listeners are aware no, I, of that. I, yeah. I, yeah.
1: Yes, good, good. Yeah. Uh, good to clarify. My concern is the following, that um, technology, again, to circle back, There is a strong technological component that is shaping expectations. Put it that way. It's shaping expectations of voters in democratic societies in a way that societies as construed are unable to meet, which is leading to a sense of frustration. This is not to say that elites have not been hollowed out and are not, Uh, Able to uh, also even cope with certain realities, and that there have been catastrophic mistakes made, as you as you alluded to. But that I, I keep coming back to this idea that technological change is an important variable that we are in danger of waving away too glibly as saying, well, you know, technological change happens, it's always been happening, and therefore Maybe there's something that's happened now um, that has raised expectations towards direct democracy that gets us to a point that leads to dysfunction, that there's a level of direct democracy that leads to ungovernability, that too much direct democracy leads to too much individualism, which again creates undermines the illusion of a single polity that is governable
0: that's the other part well isn't a bigger driver of that though um educational attainment that unprecedented level uh numbers of americans have college educations and um whether that means they're well educated or not is like perhaps a subject for a different time but i think that anytime you have well educated citizens they're going to ask for more they're going to get frustrated more quickly because the gap between what they expect and what they actually get will probably grow. And this is, I think, the story of revolution in any number of contexts. Um, and we see it throughout throughout the world um, over the course of the 20th century where you have very rapid processes of modernization and very, very rapid Shifts in educational attainment. Just think of a case, cases like Egypt, Jordan, Tunisia, whatever it might be. In the 20th century, we're talking about single digits having, you know, secondary education. And then it goes up tremendously um, to the point where even if you don't necessarily have the highest rates of college attainment, even though they've increased significantly, everyone knows about college. They know that it's something they could theoretically aspire to they know it's an option so i think to me that explains it a little bit more even here in the u.s than say and and our 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 shifts i don't know the exact numbers but in the 20th century it's been a pretty tremendous um growth in the number of americans who have college degrees then is that drive i mean is that the bigger driver i mean so because if you're educated then that that means that you will probably be more individualistic in the sense that you are you are more conscious of your own ideas and your own beliefs and so on and so forth. Shadi, I
1: I'd, I'd say um this is so not anything I I I um am very acquainted with. So I'm going to rely But on even just a, intuitively. No, but I'm going to yeah. rely on a, a half remembered statistic from from <laughs> okay. from from Tyler Cowen's book uh Not averages over, but the short booklet that came before that, Um, and he talks about the fact that I, I think in the United States the you know the uh, the easy gains of of uh, attainment for higher education that there's been some sort of plateauing to that. So I mean I would argue to you that it doesn't fully explain what's happening. That maybe I think it's it's a really interesting insight that we have. Uh, examined in developing societies uh, where the middle class emerges. I think that's what you're talking about, the emergence of the middle class and the educational attainments uh, attendant to that. It leads to a, a serious disruption, which oftentimes leads to political instability and the rest of this. Um, I'm not sure that's playing out that if you looked at the education statistics in the United States, you'd see in the last, I don't know, 10 years that I think it's, it, the opposite's been, it's been plateauing to a certain extent that it hasn't been growing. So what is it? And I, again, my, my, my theory that I'm arriving to in the midst of this conversation with you, it's perhaps it is technology that is now disrupting these things. That it's not that, that, that there's something about technology that itself is changing expectations and demands of, of, of voters in our Western democracies that the system is proving um, unable to cope with at the current moment.
0: So let's say technology is more important than I think it is in this kind of, in this kind of discussion. What are the implications of that? Could you maybe like lay out what do you think that means? Let's take your premise that technology matters more. Where does that take us?
1: Um, optimistically, it takes us to a lot of the things you've been saying, Um, more questions are raised. um, There's more stresses on the system and the system is forced to adapt. But given um, the inherent adaptability of democracy, as long as it makes space for input from the people, um, it adapts and we have a more responsive and healthier democracy going forward. Okay. That is able to... uh, take into account all the diversities, all the demands of individuals who come to realize their individuality and their individual demands. And it's able to harmonize and, and, and make this governable.
0: But does the optimistic scenario require some kind of shift in how we view the role of technology through regulation, let's say?
1: I don't know. I I mean, I, I haven't thought about that necessarily. No, no, no. The, no, call this just a purely philosophical. Let's okay. say that's that's the optimistic scenario. The negative, the the pessimistic scenario, is one where, where I'd say that the demands being put on, um, on the system, are towards a kind of direct democracy. Which, philosophically, we know to not be actually a good system. Direct democracy is inherently a dangerous thing because it leads to both a, a kind of ungovernability, because it puts too much faith in the wisdom of crowds, <laughs> um, because it a uh, healthy, functional democracy is a representative democracy that requires a healthy elite, which is delegated to, which allows for a kind of decision-making on an elite level, which is seen as legitimate but isn't as responsive, that there's something as too much responsiveness. And the nightmare scenario is that the system's inability to meet the rising demands of voters leads to the rise of demagogues, who then also leverage technology, to amplify their system. And the the feedback loop doesn't lead to reform, but in fact leads to further delegitimization, which I think you've alluded to several times through this podcast.
0: But then, but then okay, let's let's take that. Then but what is the worst case scenario? Let's say there's more delegitimization. What are we actually what are we actually afraid of? Like what what is the end point of this very problematic process? Like what do you have in mind? Because if it just sort of like Like a lot of bullshit and a lot of, um, a lot of polarization and a lot of rhetoric and each side attacking the other in a kind of near constant way. Of course, there'll be bad policy as a result of that, but bad policy is different or inhumane policy. If we talk about what's going on in the border, inhumane policy is different than the foundational undermining of democracy in a way that leads us to a a kind of hybrid system or even ends up threatening american democracy so do you
1: i precisely mean that i mean that's what if 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 demagoguery leads to a certain undermining of the principles that we're talking about you you laid it out yourself a little while ago which is that that Either the left or the right loses faith in all of this and says, "Forget it." And then, and then does there, what though? And then the recourse is to to a demagogue becoming an autocrat of some sort. I mean, you know, again on the on the 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 uh, uh, the nightmare scenario for Democrats is the one that that Trump tweaks every so often in his tweets, which is saying, you know, oh, maybe maybe it's six years, maybe it's eight years, maybe <laughs> yeah. it's twelve years because the. Uh, or, you know, not 12, uh, 10 years because Mueller took two years from my legitimate thing. So I I get to do (laughs) this, right? That's his, that's his favorite joke. But, but you know what? I mean, there, there's a, there's a, there's a serious undertone to that.
0: Um, and, you know. But here's what I'd say the very polarization you point to that would be a product. So worsening polarization over time would inhibit the ability of a demagogue to essentially make America into some kind of semi autocratic, state, the fact that we're so, um, we're, we're becoming less and less homogenous at the elite level, but also on the popular level, the fact that both sides are too strong in different ways suggests to me that even if both sides are attacking each other endlessly for being illegitimate and they don't seem to necessarily respect democratic outcomes, there could be this kind of de facto stalemate because we have a kind of partisan balancing. We're a kind of 50-50 country, and there's nothing that I've seen to suggest that we're going to become a 60-40 or a 70-30 country anytime soon. And that's actually one of the advantages, perhaps, of the electoral college. It creates a kind of check on what could otherwise be the demographic ascendance of the Democratic Party to where it would be very hard for Republicans to win on the national level. I'm just putting that out there. No, I mean, no, no that, I think
1: that's right. I mean, again, that's a, that's a subject for, for, <laughs> for, another, for a whole other episode. But, but, but I
0: think the things that we're pointing to are themselves an inhibiting factor to the worst-case scenario. Because too much polarization means that one party can't necessarily... Claim decisive victory over the other,
1: right? Right. Except, except, um, a democracy slips into something else. Either uh, you know an increasingly bitter stalemate, which leads to ungovernability. The point is, but, that, but break, that's not. But, but I... the break, the break, at some point, if the frustration gets there, doesn't require seventy thirty. Is my argument. It requires. A rejection of everything and then a resort to force of some sort. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a theory of the case here of how this plays out. But the point is, is the break. The, I mean, you know this well enough from the Middle East. You, you, you see it in Egypt recently. It's not, it's not that you needed a certain kind of popular mandate to, to end the democratic experiment. You need, you need, you need a recourse to, uh, a monopoly of violence, quite frankly. That's all. And I'm not saying, look, I'm, yeah, not, I'm look, not, I'm not even yeah. speculating on a, on a coup scenario for America. I think that's really far-fetched. We're not even getting there. But, you know, since we're trying to think through the negative sort of things here, um, even your, your medium, okay scenario of just polarization, gridlock and inability, it leads to, uh, a sense of frustration, of a sense of the system not being responsive, which is ultimately is the, one of the main premises and main promises of democracy is that it's responsive to people's will. If that is not met, it leads, I think, a, it opens the door to a, uh, a recourse or at least the plausibility or even the
0: legitimation of uh, recourse to something else that's all but so but even if democracy writ large isn't responsive to the demands of the citizenry at least each party will become more responsive to the demands of its own partisans right so at least you have that so people can kind of take solace and hey at least at least my party is indulging me um or and this is where i think we we talked a little bit about this last week the fact that people can express their anger. There is a legitimate peaceful channel for like crazy shit, i.e. social media where people can like pontificate and like attack. So when I write something in, in like the previous era, like if some person who had, who wrote articles said something dumb or problematic, There was no way for an ordinary person to express their frustration directly. Now people can like call me out and call me names 24 seven. That offers a kind of channel that may in fact be a kind of valve. Maybe, 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 and maybe that's the, maybe that's the hopeful <laughs> scenario. That in fact, no, I, I'm I'm serious.
1: I mean, uh, maybe, maybe and that's the 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 way to to end on a on a on a hopeful note on this. That that maybe it's the fact that social media allows us to vent that um, that makes the the larger uh, problems bearable. Because it is true that despite all the noise of the current moment. We're not at the level of political violence that racked us in the sixties. Yeah. Not even close. Um, And maybe the valve is doing itself. So there's a, while uh, the system is on the one hand under stress by some of these technological factors, it's also uh, technology is providing a, 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 uh, an exhaust that is helping countermand this
0: yeah and there you go it's not as bad as the 60s there
1: it is that's
0: <laughs> there you go <laughs>
1: that's that's the name of this episode <laughs> anyway shoddy uh, talk to you soon
0: yeah so um I'll be I guess in Turkey next week we'll see if I can
1: we can dial you uh, in wouldn't that something? be kind of
0: wouldn't that be kind of crazy if I would be in a completely foreign country like five thousand miles away like sitting on the beach somewhere on vacation? And I'll have like a Wi-Fi connection and I'll have like some like little like special mic contraption. And I can just like pontificate from the beach.
1: Technology, man. It really is. (laughs) It's it's the savior of us all. All right. Safe travels.
0: Okay. See you, Demir.
1: See ya.